Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Radio Podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books, and subsequently each of our careers, went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a Big Five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. I mean, this made me laugh, but Scott said one time that he thought I sounded Scottish, which I do not at all, at all, all. No, <laughs> no you don't. No. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I just mean that, like, when we went to Edinburgh, we... <laughs> yeah, yeah, keep digging. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, now, I've got family in Edinburgh. You do not sound like Edinburgh. <laughs> no. No. I've been in rural and northern Scotland, certainly not. But in Edinburgh, there seem to be quite a few people with uh, what I would consider a tamer accent. And that was about as close as I could get to placing Sunny's accent. We'll call it transatlantic. I think that's what my language professors called it. I guess we can start if everyone's okay with that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, welcome yeah, sure. to this week's Publishing Rodeo, the podcast where we actually fail to make any reference to Clint Eastwood at any time. With us today is Pete McLean. I think we just call you Pete, don't we? Most everyone does. Yeah. And I kind of met Pete years ago, like 2015, I think, on Absolute Right Forums. Yeah, yeah. He was already a published author at that time. I think I'm, I'm going to sound really daft here, but at the time I met him, I remember he was the first person I was aware of talking to on the forums where I realized he was a real author and I was properly awestruck like oh my god I'm actually talking to a person who writes books keep cool keep cool uh, and he's given me some really good advice for the years he's been very kind you know when I was an unagented author and then later when I was agented but hadn't sold he's later on when book eaters came out he blurbed it for his sins um, and also my agent Naomi Davis is a massive massive fan of the Priest of Bones book series she's always telling everyone if you want to write contemporary fantasy you need to read Pete McLean, see how it's done. So we are really glad to have you on today, and feel free to introduce yourself and say anything about you that you feel is relevant. Oh, thank you, thank you very much. So you're Harlequin on Absolute Right, aren't you? Yeah, Harlequin, oh, that's right. I can never remember what anybody's real name. Yeah, I thought that was you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I have been around a while, so I, I was the guy that got in the um, Angry Robot open door in 2013, I think it must have been 14. They they do their semi-annual open door subs, and that year I was out of eighteen hundred submissions, the one person they signed, and they bought a book called Drake off me, which is the first of uh, the Burn Man series, which was supposed to be a five book series, but we'll come back to that anyway. They they published three of them. They published Drake, Dominion, and Damnation, and then I signed with my agent. Jenny Golaboy, who was at, at a small agency in the US at the time, and she sold Priest of Bones and Priest of Lies to Ace at Penguin Random House, and then she got headhunted by Donald Miles at DMLA, which is one of the biggest SFF literary agencies in the United States. I mean, they, they rep Jim Butcher and Octavia Butler and everybody you've ever heard of, basically. And I, I was very, very fortunate she took me with her. The whole series is out now from Joe Fletcher books at Hachette in the UK. So it's Priest of Bones, Priest of Lies, Priest of Gallows, and Priest of Crowns. And the series is complete with Joe Fletcher books. And again, we can come back to that. And yes, you, I know you, you talked about it before we started recording, but yes, it was optioned for TV by uh, David Heyman of Heyday Television, who made the Harry Potter movies. Uh, which was amazing, and we can come back to that as well, because therein lies a tale. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's me, I'm Peter McLean, I'm at PeteMC666 on Twitter and Instagram, and I'm just under my own name on Facebook. You can find me everywhere, and I, I witter endlessly on social about things I probably shouldn't, but <laughs> there we are. That's, that's me in a <laughs> nutshell. 
I mostly see tweets from you about hedgehogs. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So we we live in I, I live on the outskirts of an English city, but it's in a semi-rural suburban area. And, and I know you don't have hedgehogs in the U.S., but they're, they're like a, a natural backyard critter over here like you have raccoons. And but honestly, they they don't root through your garbage, and they are so cute. So yeah, yeah, I, I feed the hedgehogs, and I try and photograph them when you can see them, which which is difficult because they're very nocturnal. But they they are absolutely adorable. So yeah, I am known for my hedgehogs. I'll grant you. <laughs> and writing fantasy Peaky Blinders books, apparently, uh, or so I'm told. I've not, I've not seen Peaky Blinders. Sorry. Yeah, I'm told that as well. I mean, I I went now. I went more for fantasy The Godfather, but I get told it's Peaky Blinders, which, which is a show I did enjoy, admittedly. It just wasn't I really what it. I was going for, but you know, yeah, it's it's that kind of thing. I mean, my two favorite genres are gangster fiction and fantasy. And I, I just thought, what happens if I ram the two together? And that's what I did. And you know, it, people seem to like it. So, you know. Yeah, I'd say it probably worked uh, quite well for you. It's, it's done okay. Yeah. All things considered, it's been a, and we all know it's been a difficult three years in publishing, but you know, it's done okay. So your road to publishing was not very smooth in points. I don't know a lot about it other than there were struggles with some of the series and whether or not they'd actually be finished. I think that's something that kind of interests people but also terrifies them a little bit. I don't know if you've heard the term Midless Death Spiral or oh, what yeah. your take on that is, but any thoughts you have are very welcome. It is an evergreen, perpetually hot yeah, discussion. I mean, I say I, I got in through a very unconventional route. I didn't have an agent to start with. As I say, I was the one that got the one that didn't get away. Got in through the angry robot open door, and they bought a book, and I thought that's tremendous. I mean, you know, I am a published author now. This is absolutely awesome. So yeah, they published Drake, and I'd I'd rather foolishly already written Dominion, but luckily they wanted that as well, and then they wanted another one. So I wrote Damnation, and at this point I had plotted it because I'm quite a plotter. I had at this point. Plotted it all out. I was like, right, I know where this is going. It now it is now a five book series. They like me. This is great. They'll buy the other two, won't they? Awesome source. And I I left Damnation on such a cliffhanger to make everybody want to rush out and buy the next book. And and then the publisher imploded. The editor left. And no, they they don't want the next two books. And I was like, well. Fuck, that's dead then, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Sorry, I hope you don't have a language policy on this podcast. Oh, no, God, we swear all the time. Oh, that's all right. That's okay, then, because I absolutely have no filter when I get on this stuff. No, we certainly do not. Yeah. That's fine. We did have, like, one upset person who wrote in and asked us to swear less, and I was just like, well, this other podcast, sorry. I mean, I didn't say that to them, but... We we can't get through <laughs> publishing discussions without swearing. That's, yeah, that's not gonna that's not gonna work for them the way they think it is. No, um, no, no. So so Pete, so you had it planned for five books, your first series. Uh-huh. But yeah. did you have more than the three that ended up happening under contract, and they actually canceled a contract, or did they just not? No, re-open? they just bought them one at a time, Got man. I, I didn't even have a multi-book because I'd come in off the street like some kind of stray alley cat without an agent. They they were just feeding me one contract at a time per book. Yeah. So. Looking back on it, I was probably being idiotically optimistic, but you don't know when you first start and you haven't got an agent behind you, you just don't know this stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, was, uh, it's, it's a shame. I, I like those books. I really wanted to get to write the last one, but nah, they, they weren't having it. They, re- they really were not. <laughs> Sorry, we're both so, really tickled to see you light up a cigarette on recording. Uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Well, you don't you don't broadcast the video, do you? I figured that was probably all right. <laughs> well, we may someday, but but again, we. Get... Oh God, don't don't start with me. I'm not exactly looking my best tonight. I haven't shaved or anything. So. <laughs> you look extremely handsome, Pete. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I mean, when I heard Sunny mention, I think it was actually er, earlier today, that you had had a series canceled, 
that was mm-hmm. very intriguing to me because I, you know, I assumed that meant that you had a contract that they then voided or what have you. And that's interesting because I haven't seen that in this industry much. And there are circumstances that I feel like merit that from a business perspective. One of the big things we've covered, right, and mine might be the most relevant example that we've covered, but we've talked about different authors who have their books launched and they're not supported or what have you, and they just don't sell enough Mm -hmm. that it seems to make sense for the publisher to keep selling book two and book three, but they've contracted through three books, right? And they seem to follow through with it just for kicks or maybe to preserve their image but yeah i i guess it makes a little more sense if if your publisher hadn't contracted for more books it was just your plan and they were doing one book at a time yeah i, I think it's it's quite dependent on circumstances i know an author who, who i won't name but he was with a publisher you'd have heard of and he signed a four book deal and they ended up only putting out three because oh, they really? just weren't selling mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah. i told him to wrap it up in three and that's all you're getting now i i assume slash really really hope he got to keep the advance for the whole four books i can't see how he didn't legally but no i mean as you say it got to the point by the sounds of it that it wasn't worth their while doing the fourth one i mean it's a yeah. crying shame i read the first one i thought it was really good but this the industry is inexplicable man is that there is other than marketing spend there is no way to predict whether you're gonna sell or not you know and even some books with a huge marketing spend still die on their ass and some books with no marketing spend are runaway successes so i don't know I don't think any of us know really how it works. Yeah, that's why we keep having people on. We're trying to figure it out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we don't have any answers, but let, we try. <laughs> let me know if you ever get there, because I'd love to know. <laughs> well, we just keep asking people one at a time, and none of them know. So. <laughs> no, no, nobody does. No. Okay, so that's a, that's. A, sorry. I mean, there's this guy, Travis Bickle or something, who I've never heard of. Who wrote a book about an orc running a coffee shop and self-published it and sold like 11 million copies and got picked up by Orbit and is now raking it in? He's like, I don't get it, you know. Uh, he's with Tor, actually. We we share the same editor. Yeah, he got he got picked up by by our publisher. Yeah. Oh really? Oh my word! And by all, mm-hmm. all by all reports, it's fantastic. Um, I have. Oh, I'm sure. Well, it must be to have sold as much as he has. It's, I mean, it's not really my kind of yeah. thing, but. Fair play to the guy, you know. Can't can't argue with that. Yeah. Are there not enough gangsters <laughs> in the coffee shop for you? No, no, not enough stabbings for me and making cups of coffee. But you know, each of their own. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, I I think my next question, uh, you know, about surviving in in that midlist world and and going contract to contract what happened so you said you you got an agent she went to donald moss is what i think Uh i heard yeah yeah but how did submission go for that next book for uh you know this this was wild so i i had at the time when when i first got with my agent i had a very senior job at hewlett-packard which i absolutely hated and was killing me i was working 24 hours a day. i was literally on call 24 hours a day and obviously yep. I'm, I'm on the east coast of england they're based on the west coast of the u.s if they if your director needs something at his dinner time he phones me up it's 2 a.m my time fuck you i need it do it do you know what i mean were you and also what were you doing were you doing like database IT um, stuff? no no uh, client support i was an account manager so i was also uh-huh. at the client's back and call 24 hours a day and oh my oh yep. it was i mean i was making a fortune but it was literally killing me this thing and yep. i i maxed out my 25 years redundancy entitlement and they did a quarterly cull because it was cut 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 under the ceo at the time and every quarter anybody who wanted to be laid off you only had to put your hand up and say please sir pick me sir let me let me escape sir and they paid you your money. So I, I, I walked with a year's gross salary, tax-free cash in my back pocket and went, right, I ain't doing it. I'm having a year off, sold this for a lot. And I also got a huge tax rebate because obviously I've been paying a lot of tax. And I left in June, I think. So I've, our, our tax year runs April to April in the UK. And I left in June. So the revenue had already estimated me a full year's tax. So I called them up and they said, oh no, we owe you. If you're not going to work again before next April, here, here's a huge pile of cash. So I was Oh, thank you very much. So 
Um, my wife and I went off on Flor on holiday to a, a very nice resort in Florida, just just to get over my PTSD of working for this hellhole for the last time of many decades. Been. And I'd signed with Jenny then, and she she had Priest of Bones, and I was I kid you not, man, I was taking deal phone calls on the balcony of this five-star spa resort in Florida. And I have never felt so rock star before in my life. I probably I probably never will again, but it was absolutely brilliant. It really, really was. So we had um, we had offers from Ace at Penguin and Orbit US and, and Angry Robot, who obviously hadn't got the money. But I mean, you know, they were absolutely outclassed by Orbit and Penguin. And um, yeah. Orbit actually offered on three books... Ace only offered on two, but I had calls with both their editors, and I really, really had it off with the editor at Ace, a lady called Rebecca Brewer. She absolutely got me, and I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll take a chance. They were offering the same amount per book, but Ace were offering on three books, and Penguin were only offering on two. But I, I think, I think Orbit wanted me to change more than I would have wanted changed, and um, yeah, so we, so we went so with did... Penguin, and uh, yeah, deal done. Yeah. Did you did you go on submission with a full book then, just like you yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. would as a debut? Okay, I, I'd written okay. I'd written the whole thing because of course I'd, I'd, this was my first agent, so so I had to have a full uh. book to get signed with with Jenny. We did have the full book. I hadn't written any of the second one. I wasn't making that mistake again. <laughs> but I, you know, I had a rough outline proposal for the whole trilogy, which it, it has ended up being four books. It is now a trilogy in four volumes. In a very hitchhiker's guide sort of way, but yeah. <laughs> therein lies another story. But uh, yeah, 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 no, that we did that deal then, and it, it was so quick. I think from signing with Jenny to signing with Penguin was probably about six weeks. It's about the time it took us to go on holiday, and then suddenly this all kicked off while we were there, which was amazing. And just very quickly for listeners or for people who don't know, because some folks are either still querying or still on the submission to publishers, uh, once you have books out, you can often pitch options or additional books on proposal and sample chapters. Uh, and that's why Scott's asking whether you'd write on spec. So writing on spec means you have to write the full book versus just an outline with some ideas which is a proposal. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because that's kind of where I am now. So the, I say the series is done. All four books are out through JFB. And Joe, Joe Fletcher, my editor, unfortunately left Joe Fletcher books at the end of last year. And I now have a new editor who doesn't know me from old in the ground. Um, I mean, I've had one call with her. She's, she's very nice, but she doesn't know who I am. And I don't think she's had the chance to read the books yet. But the next thing I want to do is another, is a standalone novel in the same world so not a continuation of the series because the series is done but something else in that setting and i'm very conscious nobody except jfb is going to buy it because you know the, the intent of it is there is to be a novel in its own right but also to drive sales to the existing series so no other publisher's gonna pick that up are they so i've i've pitched a proposal for that and we're waiting to hear back, but I think, well, I'm not right in that on spec, because if, if my new editor doesn't want it, it's dead. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm not doing that. You might not be able to talk about this, but I remember seeing on Facebook there was some issue that you were having with the Priest of Bones series, I think, with the formats they're putting the books out in. Is that right? Because they started in hardbacks. Yeah, yeah, a little, a little bit. This, this is just economics again. I mean, the, the US isn't very big on hardbacks, so... So the Ace editions were uh, trade paperbacks to start with. Over here, the, the first two, the first two JFB ones came out on hardcover. The second two, she couldn't justify the cost, but she'd only actually bought one more, because <coughs> it was supposed to be a trilogy. And my agent and myself had a bit of a heart-to-heart with Joe about, look, unless you want this to be half a million words, which you don't, it needs to be two more books. And Joe, bless her, absolutely got me and and signed another two books. But at that point, Ace had noped out. So unfortunately, my, my editor, Rebecca, at Ace left, again, quite unwillingly, I think. But publishing, so there's so much turnover in editorial in publishing and I was assigned a new editor who again was very nice but again didn't know who the fuck I was and it's just like you know this isn't really going to happen is it but I mean you know I've, this is the difference with with transatlantic deals I mean I, I sold worlding no I sold world 
to Penguin, not even World English, Absolute World, translation and everything to Penguin. So my books in England, in my own country, were effectively a foreign rights deal, which is weird. But, you know, I've been down to like Carmelite House, it's, it's down on Blackfriars, it's not a million miles away. I've had lunch with Joe Fletcher. I've never met. I've never even met my agent. Never mind any of my American publishing people. I'm the exact same. My UK sale is a foreign deal because we sold to the US first. Really, a Canadian oh, okay. agent who have never been able to meet in person, even though I, and uh-huh. I live in the UK. So, tell us. I mean, that's where the money is, isn't it? The money's in the states. You, you don't get anything like the size deals here that you get over there, that, that I've seen anyway. Yeah, I, I think so. My sales for the UK were strong because of crates, and they were probably equivocal to my US sales, like almost on a par. Uh, I actually have a reader question I was going to very quickly ask you, if that's okay, because we do sometimes get listener questions, not reader questions, sorry, where someone said, I want to hear about the very real fatigue that sets in with the writing career. We are living the dream, and yet after several books, basically doing the same thing over and over, it's harder to find that magic we had at the start of the journey there's a saying that getting published is hard but staying published is harder and this person is interested in you know how to cope how to stay in the game how to stay healthy i'm sorry to kind of throw that at you but i thought you might be a good person to ask that for oh i'm the worst person to ask how to stay healthy because he, he says he lights another cigarette that's not really my thing but at least i'm not drinking i have got tea i left the, i left a bottle of whiskey in the house so you know there's that um, I, I, I think it depends why you do it, to be honest. I mean, I write because I love to tell stories. And when I'm telling the stories I want to write, I don't get the fatigue. I, I did IP writing for a while, and that that's a whole different thing. I, I will be honest, I did that purely for the money. And it does pay well, but it is back-breaking. And hmm. if you're writing for an IP that you realise you actually don't care about or don't like it it just sucks the joy out of it i I will never do that again are you able and willing to talk about what that was like and what the franchise was um in very generic terms no okay because ndas are a thing yep yeah that's why i ask it's it's back bright deadlines are brutal you have to you're basically writing advertising copy to sell toy soldiers or movie tickets or comic books or whatever it may be and your deadline will coincide with the release date of whatever it is you've been told to try and sell you will probably find it ridiculous because most of it is you will be expected to know it inside out which you won't because you're doing this for the money and it's not something you care about you'll be given all the source books and background information for free which is great but you're doing the research on your own time which isn't paid and you have to make a story to a very american idea of pg-13 because all this stuff is aimed at kids so you know you you very cannot have any swearing any reference to sex whatsoever you can mow a man in off with a machine gun on page one because that's fine. That's all right for children. But do you know what I mean? I just, oh, no. no. It wasn't for me. Really, really wasn't. That is. But it is, it is lucrative. I know people who do this for a living, honestly, but they're pumping out five, six novels a year. Jeez. And, yeah, I couldn't do that. Yeah. Not, if it was something I loved, I could probably do it, but I've yet to find an IP I care that much about, to be honest. Is the, and I'm sorry if these are super basic questions about IP work, but is the editing process pretty comprehensive for that? Or is it write it, throw it in a book, and it's done? No, it's write it, throw it at the editor. They will tell you what to change, you change it, you throw it back, they say thank you very much and pay you. And then they change whatever they like to a greater or lesser extent and publish it with your name on it. And I, I didn't have a massive problem with this I, I i read a couple of mine that were published and thought oh i would never have written that but it was nothing too bad but i i know a guy they destroyed his career to the extent he's now writing under a pen name because oh, wow. they, they changed so much of his story that it just didn't work anymore hmm. and everyone is now saying well this guy's a shit writer because his plot doesn't work and oh yeah no I, I never did novels for them. I only did short fiction. Gotcha. Which I think, but honestly, on the, the flip side, it's the only short fiction market I've ever written for that pays royalties. I'm still earning money every six months off short stories I wrote three or four years ago. 
And I don't think anywhere else does that that I've ever encountered. But if I'd known going into it, I'd have done it under a pen name, I'll tell you. Yeah, theoretically, <laughs> Tor.com pays royalties, but I don't think it tends to make any. At least I've not received any. Uh, I have published two short fiction pieces through Tor.com. You get paid pretty decently. It's about 25 cents a word, which is really good. Well, that's not bad. Yeah, yeah, that's not bad at all. And then I think they have a royalty structure. So effectively, like what they pay is like an advance that storyboard then there's some kind of royalties but it's never mm. sold enough for me to get any the only thing i've ever seen of ip was my agent sending around this thing for writing paul patrol books and that was just <laughs> no they did they oh they didn't word. do much background work on that did they <laughs> well they were like this is an opportunity if you're interested in ip work let us know and one was like paw patrol and i swear to god one was like barbie or something i just could not even consider it it's, it's not really you is it? <laughs> her book has a kid in it let's go with her <laughs> oh, oh this is before book ah uh, okay yeah so, yeah uh, pete one thing that i don't know whether you know you're gonna enjoy going into this or whether you'll have a, a good answer and that's okay too but just looking at you know your your goodreads page and and how you've talked about your first series versus your second it seems like your second took off uh a a lot more than your first did do you have any ideas uh, as to you know what most influenced that because you talked about really still loving your first series and wanting to continue that series but you know it it obviously just didn't find uh, the readership that your second did what what went into that oh no no you're right it it didn't i mean burn man was was obviously with a much smaller publisher i mean angry robot at the at the time i'm not talking about angry robot now because the entire team has changed and i don't know a soul there anymore but yeah at the time they had no marketing money whatsoever so they had bookshop distribution and they got me um us distribution through penguin so that was good so it it sold but nowhere near as much as i'd have liked it to and so it's it's urban fantasy but it's very much not romance and it published at a time when paranormal romance was the thing an urban fantasy that was mostly about gangsters and demons and was basically john constantine in prose with different name just was not selling do you know what i mean It, it was the wrong thing at the wrong time and marketed the wrong way I do know what that's like, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know you do, mate. I know you do. But Priest of, Priest of Bones, although it's still gangsters, is proper swords and horses fantasy, and there's always a market for that. And I, I was riding the coattails of probably the end of the grimdark wave, I think, with that. And um, I got a cover blurb from Mark Lawrence, who obviously wrote Broken Empire and it. And his road brothers and my pious men are cut from the same cloth. So there's a lot of overlap. I think I picked up a lot of readers from him and I'll always be grateful for that. And obviously, I mean, Penguin had a hell of a lot more marketing money to throw at it. It was it was featured at um, the New York Book Expo. They were virtually throwing arcs at people before Priest of Bones came out. And yeah, th- this stuff does make a difference. It, re- it really does. But also one thing I've noticed is it's finished and since Crowns came out, which is the last book, I've seen a huge uptick in sales of Priest of Bones because so many people now won't start an unfinished fantasy series. But but now it is done, and I can say, look, I did the work. It's all out. People people are starting to take my word for it and, and trusting me and picking up the first one. So, I mean, it's taken four and a half fucking years, but, you know, it's, it's getting there. It's... I, I don't think it'll ever be anything better than mid-list, but it's, I think it's fairly solid mid-list. I mean, the first three have earned out, and the fourth one only came out in late August, I think it was, last year, so it's not done too bad. Were you thinking about market? I mean, you talked about how the first kind of book, maybe the timing, you just got unlucky, but was that something you thought about when writing the next series, the, the market situation, or were you just writing whatever the hell you wanted to write? I was just writing what I wanted to be. I, I think writing to market is a fool's errand. I really do. Because, I mean, you know, the stuff that's come out yesterday and is making lists and is a smash hit was acquired at least two years ago. You know, I mean, I know you know this, but it's like, if you write 
If you start writing now for what was a bestseller yesterday, by the time you come out in another two years' time, you're going to be old news and the market will have moved on. You think everybody that tried to write Twilight clones after Twilight went megastar. Everyone's like, ew, vampires. No, we're, we're over that. Go away. Do you know what I mean? It's, so, it's a bad idea. So you're saying... <laughs> You're saying this is not the time to jump into the Greek retelling market. I'm thinking probably not, no. (laughs) I don't know if I can keep that. You might make some people cry. (laughs) (laughs) Norse retelling it is. Oh, I don't know. I think Joanne Harris and Neil Gaiman kind of sewed that one up between them already. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, now this is a really weird question. I'm just kind of curious about when did you first learn the term mid-list? Because I think there's a point where we all first hear that word. Oh, shortly after I landed on it, I think. (laughs) 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 Certainly not before I was published. This was was all a bit of a, a horrible, rude awakening that... There is this purgatory of <laughs> published but not famous or making any money that most people end up on. Like, oh, well, fuck. I wish I'd done this in advance. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, this is why I've always been such an advocate of absolute right, to be honest, Sonny, because so, so many people go into this industry with their eyes wide shut and think, you know, I'm going to be published, that's it, J.K. Rowling's a billionaire and so will I be. And I know you won't. <laughs> I, I think it's a hard lesson for a lot of people that haven't done the research. I really, really do. But doing the yeah. research is incredibly difficult because nobody is, well, I mean, I know we're being, but very few people are transparent about this stuff. Nobody wants to admit that they actually haven't done as well as they wanted to. And it's, it, does, it doesn't help anyone, you know. It's, well, I'm always happy to be honest about this stuff because it's just how it is, you know. Yeah, and I mean... Did you it's... have any expectations when you sold? Sorry, I cut you off, Scott. No, you're fine. No, you're good, you're good. Like, did you have that kind of newbie sense of, oh, here comes fame and fortune? No, no, not really, to be honest. I was so surprised they picked it up at all. Because I, I was actually running the Angry Robot Open Door submission tracker on Absolute Right that year. And watching the number of people crash out of it. And I was keeping this this little tracker spreadsheety thing on the thread of who submitted when and who got rejected when and when I finally figured out I was the only one that got through I was like oh this don't bode well does it because I you know I'd read some of the other submissions and they were really good and I thought oh dear you know so now I I knew they I knew they weren't a big five I didn't expect fame and fortune but I didn't expect to get dropped either, I must admit. That that was a bit of a rude awakening, but you know, as we know now, it's a thing that happens that happens to a lot of people. How did that factor into your expectations with your second deal then? Well, I'd already already started writing Priest of Bones because I I mean, I'm not an urban fantasy reader. I I kind of read those wrote those books by accident in a way and I've, you know, Swords and Horses is where I'm at, and I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to have, have a proper bash at this, and I got halfway through that, and I sent some of it to my then still editor at Angry Robot, or what do you think? And he was a bit, yeah, well, yeah. And he, he knew it was going down the swanee then. The publisher was about to be sold. And I just wish he'd told me that before I sent a book that ended on a cliffhanger and he signed off on it. But yeah, it's, it is what it is. What it is. But no, I didn't have any expectations for Priest of Bones whatsoever because I thought, well, my last series got dropped. My name is Mud. God, is that feedback me or you? I don't know where that's coming from. But so no, I didn't have any expectations whatsoever, to be honest. And then when Jenny phoned me up on my balcony in Florida, thank you very much, and said, "Oh, we've got offers from Penguin and Orbit," I was like, "Seriously? This is good news." You know, let, let's have a conversation. Do you know what I mean? But now the the thing is, when when Ace canned me. I thought I really did think it was all over because I was like, my editor left. They pretty much stopped signing anything new. They cut the imprint down to the bone. I think think they went from five editors down to two or something over the space of a couple of weeks. And I thought, 
you know what, if I end up with the second dead series against my name, I'm in pen name territory. No one's ever going to trust me again, do you know what I mean? But thankfully, thanks to my agent's fantastic negotiation abilities and Joe Fletcher's huge enthusiasm for the series, it did get picked up in the UK by his share and we got away with it and finished it, which has rescued my name because really otherwise it would be dead it would be dead so that ace business was that that was in the states but your, yeah, yeah your uk publisher kept uh kept out it with book three and four yeah did they have exactly. distribution into the states from three and four on then yes yeah hmm. yeah yeah they have they have it, it took a lot i think three came out in the u.s i think about six months after it did in the uk because there was a lot of contract shenanigans had to go on to manage the handover but yeah now, JFB are distributing them in the States. Awesome. Which is good. Yeah. Wow. That is, that is, <laughs> you've had a lot of hurdles. <laughs> it's been a ride, mate. I'll tell you, it has definitely been a ride. But I mean, hey, look, you know, earning out on three of the four already is uh-huh. pretty goddamn solid, even for, for mid-list. There should be a term for mid-list that hasn't crashed and burned. <laughs> but you and Sunny now have mentioned a, a TV deal. I'm very interested to hear how that came about, because, you know, you hear about that a lot with Bigger Book, but with folks in the real world, it, it doesn't seem to be as common, but you seem to have pulled that off also. So I want know your magic tricks also is it I, is that is that cigarette number three? Oh, probably yeah. all right <laughs> we're just <laughs> we're just counting here on the show yeah i i kind of had pulled it off i mean you, you have to remember that selling a tv option and having a show made are wildly different things a lot of people sell options very 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 few shows get made so i, I can't tell you the magic because i don't know how it happened either <laughs> okay i really really don't I had an email from my agent one day, and she said, I've had contact from UTA, which is United Talent in the States, one of the biggest theatrical agencies in the US. One of their agents had reached out to Jenny, because apparently he represents David Heyman. So, you know, this guy's not a minnow, put it mildly. And I, I, no, I'll not tell you his name, but he's, he's a senior agent at UTA. He's based out of Beverly Hills. He represents Heyman. Heyman was somehow aware of my book i i've no idea if he'd actually read it or not i must listen it's not impossible but had expressed an interest and had basically gone to this guy his agent at uta and said get me this hmm. so he'd done his own work found out who my agent was got on to jenny and said can we talk and you know, jenny mailed me and said i've got an agent at uta who wants to talk to you about selling an option for your book are you interested i was like the fuck do you think yes set it up <laughs> and honestly i had a call with this guy um he, he he spoke hollywood at me for 20 minutes and i understood about one word in four <laughs> And said, oh, heyday television, who are distributed through NBC Universal, are very interested in this. Would you like to talk to them? Uh, yes, I would. Thank you very much. Um, so he set that up. And I had a maybe an hour conference call with... I mean, I mean this was... They're, they're in the UK. So I had maybe an hour conference call with, with Jenny. The UTA agent couldn't make it, unfortunately. But with Jenny and the producer and the... I think an executive scriptwriter or something at Heyday, and they wanted to talk. Now we talked, we back and forth on this, and did a little bit of fencing over, yeah, you know, how much creative involvement do you need, and blah blah, you know. And I said all the right things because I'm I'm Twitter friends with a lady called Ann Tibbetts, who's who's also a literary agent, but who used to work in Hollywood. And, and I, th- I don't know if she was a Hollywood agent or a producer or something. Anyway, she knows how it works. So so I hit her up on the back channel and just said, help! You know, what should I say or not say to not torpedo this at first contact? And she was incredibly helpful, bless her. I, I still owe her a pint for that if we ever meet. And yeah, no, I just called with the producers and it went really, really well. And um, the UTA agent got back to me a few days later and said, yeah, they'd like to sign an option. I was like, oh, thank you very much. That's marvellous. This is, oh, and it's literally free money, right? It's two conference calls and then somebody wants to give you a ton of money to basically not sell anybody else an option for two years. I thought, like, well, I can do that. Nobody else has asked, let's be honest, you know. <laughs> but oh my days, the amount of 
contract that went into this. I mean, I do contracts for my day job, and I can read and pretty much understand a publishing contract quite well. A screen option contract? No. My promise to not sell an option to anybody else is over 30 pages long, I kid you not. And it goes into the minutiae of every detail as though they were actually making the show. And I think it's because by the time they've made that commitment, they can't risk you then having a big Davis drop and saying, no, actually, I want this, that and the other. So everything's thrashed out in, in advance, including the parking space I was going to get at the Hollywood studio they weren't going to make the show at. Were they going to make the show? Which they didn't. And it just that really... It's, it's unreal. And whether I got a producer or executive producer credit, because that affects your residuals, and I still don't even know what a residual even is, but, you know, I let him handle all that, and then they gave me a pile of money and went away. Oh, thank you very much, you know. And then the pandemic hit, and the pandemic rolled on for a year. The option renewed. They gave me another pile of money. Oh, thank you very much. I've done, I have done an hour and a half's work so far for this. I'll take the second pile of money. Thank you very much. And then the year rolled and the option came up for renewal that they would have had to pay for and the pandemic was still going on and the producer had quit by then and they just went nah. apparently somebody wrote a pilot script at some point which i never got to see that Heyman didn't like and that was the end of that but this i mean this has happened to mark lawrence it's happened to fonda lee and god knows how many other people we've heard of but th those are the ones i know of who've been public about it on social i, th I think it's pretty much almost standard that if you sell an option it won't get made yeah <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah but it's nice i got a headline in in deadline hollywood which is a bucket list item from when i grew up reading jackie collins books as a teenager and it's like this is great you know and like i say it's money and i didn't it didn't actually might be doing any work so yeah are you, are you able and willing to share the highlights of what to say or not say in that first meeting you said you had contacted a friend and uh they kind yeah. of coached you it's it's fairly straightforward common sense stuff i mean the, the biggest red flag for a producer is a diva author that's got to demand creative control because if you want jk rolling you're just not going to get it it's as simple as that yeah but other than that it's like you know how involved are you going to be available for consultancy yes and there was a ludicrously large price per hour attached to that if which made me think they're never actually going to want me for consultancy but you know it's nice to be asked isn't it yeah so they did <laughs> Can want i go sit in a they didn't want creative huh? control for the author but they did want consultancy available from the author available on an if they wanted it basis but yeah 30 grand an hour i couldn't see them ever actually asking for it you know what i mean yeah i know right it's insane sign me up yeah it re really re yeah yeah well quite i mean it's just like yeah th this is a keep him sweet but we're never invoking it clause obviously but you know yeah it was just it was mad man i was like, it's, it was a whole whole window into a whole other world i just say oh i don't know how this stuff works absolutely crazy but it was interesting and it was obviously very very flattering to be asked you know it's good stuff and it was very good publicity as well of yeah. course now a, 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 you know a, a headline feature in deadline makes people know you exist like nothing else so <laughs> yeah it was it was great but very very strange but i, I would say do not ever go near anybody in the screen industry without a proper screen agent behind you because my literary agent didn't know what she was looking at anymore and i did it is so different yeah so what'd you do at that point what'd you do in terms of uh securing a screen agent you know i have absolutely no idea this guy came to me mm. I assume, as with lit agencies, you would go to a screen agency and say, offer in hand, if someone's come to you with a deal and say, can we option this? Because, I mean, options come from a lot of different places. This this was a major production company who threw a lot of money at me, which was lovely. But a lot of options, they, options might be a screenwriter who's got no deal in hand, no money to throw at you, but contacts. And if nobody else is asking for it, you think, well, what have I got to lose? But if if you sign a two-year option with some unattached screenwriter, then you've made a promise not to sell it to anybody else. So if production company comes to you the next week and says, can we buy this? You've got to say no. And that's a hell of a gamble to make for no money so I'd, I'd be a bit i'd be a bit wary of that but but yeah now how you go about 
attracting these people without a deal. I have absolutely no idea. Naomi was putting out feelers for film agents for book eaters. Um, we had Nick binge on a couple of weeks ago, and he said that in the film industry, there are basically people whose entire job is to get on the hype train to find the books that are hyped and send them to film agents. And his book was very hyped, so he sold the film rights before his novel came out. Sorry, the film option, not the film rights. And I think Naomi was trying to do that a bit with Book Eaters, but I didn't really have that same level of buzz that I think he did. So we did sign with the film agent very early on, and he essentially said, your book sounds completely ludicrous when you try and summarize it to people, which is quite true. Um, I didn't, you know, which is quite true. So we're not going to just walk around pitching it. We're going to wait and see if you can get some really solid sales. And then his strategy was just to, like, corner people and say, here, read it, without reading the blurb, because... If they read the blurb, though, they'll think it sounds crazy, which it does. And that was my side of the process that I saw, uh, is that Bookins did try and reach out to film contacts, and your agency may or may not have been on that. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, the other thing to bear in mind, some, something I picked up, is that if if a production company knows it wants to make book X, and it's already sold it to Netflix or HBO or whoever, they will option everything remotely similar to book X and just sit on the rights so nobody else can make a competitor. And that might be what happened to me. I mean, there is no way of knowing. Because, I mean, an option is is a drop in the ocean money compared to what HBO are going to pay them if they actually want to make the thing they do want to make. And it's, it's just a hedge in the bets thing, you know? So what comes next for you, Pete, just now that you've wrapped up all the books you're currently on, you're out of contract, where do you go from here? What I have pitched to my editor, and I, I'm working on the assumption I can talk about this. Nobody's told me I, I can't. So I have done War for the Rose Throne. It is a four-book series, and it is finished. Now, I don't know how well you, you know Joe Abercrombie's work. So he wrote the First Law trilogy, which was, was a, a slow burner, but ended up being a runaway success. He then wrote three standalones in the same world and then wrote a follow-on trilogy about the descendants and the children of the protagonists of the first trilogy. And that's pretty much what I've got my eye on doing. Because th- I'm going to be honest with you, I'm a lazy bugger. I've built this world. I know how it works in ludicrous detail. It is a playground to tell stories in, and I want to do the same thing. So, So I've pitched a couple of World of the Rose Throne standalones to my editor and I've got notes and ideas and things but I flat refuse to write it because as I say if they don't pick it up absolutely nobody else is going to so I'm not doing that I've also got another different world uh, fantasy novel on the go on the back burner which I mean it I'm weird for a fantasy author I don't like too much fantasy in my fantasy do you know what I mean when I'm writing it I I don't want to have to completely create worlds and societies and structures and days and times. And I find that kind of thing hard to read and loses reader and gut. I mean, the only person I know who's really good at that is R.J. Barker. His Bone Ships books are phenomenal, but it does take a while to get your eye in. And, and you know, learn the language, the customs, that everything is totally different. Whereas I, I write... I write historical fantasy, historical fiction, but I want there to be wizards in it, basically. Do you know what I mean? It's really not that fantasy-ish. So, yeah, so the other fantasy I've got is along those lines as well, but at a different different setting and totally different characters. And I also, I did start writing a middle-grade kids' book. Yeah, you pull that face at me, son. Yeah, yeah, I can understand it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, How many you know people what? die in this middle-grade kids' book? Oh, oh only okay. one so far, and that's off-screen and before it starts. But I, I just, I don't know what I'd do with it. My agent doesn't rep kids' books. It would have to go out under a pen name. I mean, you can imagine school librarians buying that and then going, "Oh, we'll buy all these others and put them out for the, they put them out for the little eleven-year-olds." Now I'm going to get sued into oblivion, aren't I? So I started doing it because I I grew up on um, Diana Wynne Jones and Joan Aitken and that kind of thing, and it's it's that sort of kind of thing, and I I just started doing it for fun, and I, I showed a bit to my wife who reads a lot of children's fiction and she she reads, reads books to the grandchildren and that kind of thing. And she said, oh, this is actually really good. You should write this. You should do this. And I, I don't know what to do with it. 
All those children are mildly terrifying, and I might have to do school visits and things. And, oh, God, no, I'm not sure about that. But, but you know, it's, it's an option. I, I might... I might bite the bullet and do it eventually, who knows? I don't know if you remember a, a user called Put Put from Absolute Right, uh, real name oh, yeah, yeah. just mentioning her because she put out a middle grade novel in the same year that she put out a YA thriller and an adult rom-com mm-hmm. and one other book, I can't remember. She's very prolific. Uh, I keep meaning to bring her on and ask her about that sometime, but yeah, there are some people doing the multi-genre thing very very successful. yeah oh you should she, she's done really well hasn't she yeah she didn't she, wasn't it her that did dialogue for aunties yeah yeah she's she's done really uh-huh. well uh, yeah after a very long publishing no, she journey. really has done well oh, that's good to know yeah i might have to have a dig it i mean it's not a genre i know the first thing about it just just seemed fun at the time so yeah you never know it might happen one day and this was extremely interesting I think gives a little hope. One note on the the middle grade or kid lit, whatever you want to call it. Man, my eight-year-old daughter chews through books so much faster than I do. So <laughs> I think I think if you land a book in that, you know, that readership group, I would bet you could do very well with it. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on and talking yeah. to us. I can't remember if I told you much about what the podcast was for before we did it, but we appreciate it. And Scott doubly appreciates it when someone makes a <laughs> Uh, also, Clay Harmon from our Discord says he wants us to tell you that he loves your Twitter threads. Oh, that's great. Oh, thank you, Clay. <laughs> yeah, no, this is good, man. It's always good to ha- to feel like there's some hope beyond being picked up for a mega debut deal, you know? So it's good to, good to talk to people who have jumped some hurdles and still found some joy in this bleak industry. <laughs> Oh, I still enjoy it. It, it is what it is. I mean, you know, I'm used. To, I'm used to corporate America, man. This is not that bad in comparison. <laughs> I I meant to tell you that the way the way you left Hewlett Packard is almost exactly how I left my my career, my corporate career. Uh-huh. Um, and we'll see if I ever go back to it. But it was the same. Uh, you know, a merger happened and. There was a raise your hand if you want, and I was like, oh, oh me, me, oh, me, me. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly that. <laughs> please stop, please stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I know exactly what you made. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was time. You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sonny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later.